Welcome, everyone out there, everyone out there in the universe, back to the broadcast. I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network, and I am joined on this beautiful Friday afternoon by the one, the only, the one and only, Tracy Pearson. Tracy, how are you? <laughs> I'm really good, Dave. That I like the way you changed that up this time. Yeah, you that know, was, I like to keep it nice. fresh. I like to that keep was, it fresh. You know, it was the exact same thing you say every time. But it was fresh. That's what Dif- I do. It's different exactly inflection. Right. Yeah. The yeah. same thing, but different. If I were just a listener, I would not be like turning this off like I usually would. No, would you'd be, be like, wow, this is something new and different. I want this. Exactly. Yeah. I would. No. I would. And yeah. I'd feel good about myself. It's right sort of now. Dylan-esque. That's what I like to think of it as. You know how you go to like a Bob Dylan concert and you hear the same songs, but they're like completely different? Yeah, that's happened to me a lot. But sometimes, but like sometimes it's horrible, right? Like sometimes yeah. it's like, wow, this is unlistenable. This is some experimental stuff. But sometimes it's like, wow, that's a new spin on it that I didn't know I wanted, but now I do. Yeah, sometimes I think they try too hard though to put new spins on things and just play a decent version of your song that we all came to listen to. Sort of like Chip Kelly. We didn't we didn't <laughs> hire you to come here and play the like new the new stuff. We hired you to play the hits buddy yeah buddy um i went to a concert before lockdown it was uh it was the arroyo seco uh at that was obviously in arroyo seco a few years ago and counting crows played Mm. and i gotta tell you though they (laughs) he used it their lead singer used it as an opportunity to bring out all of his friends and play songs that they've written that you had never, literally two thirds of their set were songs from people you had never heard and songs you, and songs you've never heard. Yeah. You don't like it that. was No, no, no. It's yeah. 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 Anyway. Okay. Yeah. I could talk about music. You want to talk about music? Uh, no, no, not really. Okay. Not really. Not today. Okay. Good. Let's talk basketball because this oh, is hey, a really, yeah, yeah, yeah. really, really fun subject right now because UCLA's in first place. They're uh, twelve they're and, two. and two. They 12 are and two, twelve so and two. Eight, eight and zero in the Pac twelve. And if you just watch this team, there's so many things about it. Because if you just watch this team, you'd say, Oh damn, there's no reason why they should be eight and zero. But then on the other hand, you say, Wow, they're doing so much with the talent they have. And then on the other hand, you say, mm, they could still get a little bit better, I think. So it's highly interesting. They've been squeezing out these victories in just grinder games that are grinding down everyone's nails, pretty much. But they win them. Yeah. It, you, every game you start to say it about the six-minute mark, uh, this is the one. This is the one. They're just, they're just Cody Riley's just not going to do it this time. He's just not. They're a, then, they're a, then he goes off again. Like they're a final see. four team in the last four minutes of games, and they're a team that misses the tournament for the first 36. That's, yeah. 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 I, at least the first 20. Yeah. I mean, okay, first half, first half, they're a team that would have a losing record, right? Uh, and then the first 16 minutes of the second half, maybe they're a fringe tournament team. And then the last four minutes of the game, they're a final four team. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really odd, but I do like, just before we get into any of the critical analysis, I want to like belabor this even a little bit more. They're like 15 and one in their last 16 games. Also, my daughter's microphone is going off. So you just vamp for a second while I turn that off. That was so cool. It just, it just went off by itself. 
Oh, you're not listening to me. I can say all these horrible things I've been storing up for 15 years to say about you. Are you back? He's Great. still We're back. There, there yeah. you are. Um, so that was I just a... want to say while you were gone, I was heaping praise on you, just saying what a wonderful person and, and person to work with that you oh, are. Oh, God. Jeez. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, well, that was, a, that was a watch that I bought my daughter because she always wants to know the time. Um, but she likes to also, in her experience with time, set just frequent alarms uh, on my phone, on whatever device she has. And so they just go off from time to time, and then you find a time to turn them off. That's anyway. pretty damn funny. Oh, it is pretty great. Um, she, uh, yeah. So anyway, UCLA uh, is 15-1 yes. and one in their last 16 conference games. Yeah. Just like... That's freaky good. No matter what kind of wins you're talking about, to win that many games in conference play, like that's your, you know, pretty much the bread and butter of your best opponents are going to come in conference, even if you do have a pretty good non-conference schedule. So that's, it doesn't matter what slice of 16 games you're talking about. That's really, really good. Yes. It's nice to be able to watch a good program again. That's yes. Fundamentally. That, that's that's the fundamental thing. We're we're enjoying watching <clears throat> the team, even though they're winning at this clip. I, I mean, it's still just you watch and you nitpick things, but you just don't watch walk away from a game and saying, oh, my God, that was unwatchable. It was just unwatchable. So, yeah, completely 100 percent different. And it's so good and so compelling we have to welcome Greg Hicks back to the bro fold. Because he is welcomed and he is encouraged by it. Like that's, he's, he's so happy about it. We had to. <laughs> it's funny though, because Greg in his natural habitat, in his natural state, he's not, he's not like this brutal guy. It's not like you go into a restaurant and he's, you know, dressing down waitresses. It's not who he is. It's just when things are bad with UCLA basketball and some people on the forum start defending certain coaches to a, a ridiculous degree it can incense him so beyond reason that he becomes then the dark lord of bro yeah i think he's more anti-bs than anything right yes. you can't deal yeah. with uh, yeah. the constant um buttering up of what is an objective disaster right yes so you know, Lavin era got to him. Alford era, maybe close to killed him. I don't know. You know, but uh, now Cronin era, you've got Happy Hicks. Yeah, and it's, and, not- and it's not just watching the basketball, which yeah was painful, but it was everyone in the forum who were magically saying, "Yeah, Steve Alford's still the man," and, and just just defending that to the very last was what he was completely. Uh, intolerable so yeah and and i'm with him on that i i i get that he just you know couldn't control it at times yeah. which yeah all right yeah. so we've buttered up the basketball program now um i yeah. do want to point out a couple of things okay one winning a ton of close games over uh average to above average to below average teams not sustainable yeah. like long term no. not sustainable you're gonna lose some of those just off mm-hmm. luck of the draw there's happen. a rec- there's a reckoning coming. There's yeah. a reckoning coming. It almost came last night. Yeah. So I it, it's very good that they're in this position. It's a testament I think not only to just good luck, but I think it is a testament to 
coaching. It's a testament to mental toughness. It's a testament to all those things that everyone wants to talk about when they win close games. But there's just pure variance in basketball. Possession goes your way. Possession goes the other way. It changes the score. Um, and Cal hits one more three at a critical moment last night. It's a different game at the end game. So just, yes, you can be happy about uh, winning a ton of close games, but you would much rather be blowing teams out, especially the mediocre ones, because you don't want to let teams hang in there, especially the way Cal was shooting last night, and just let them be close the entire game, because then it just hinges on one possession going one way or the other. That didn't happen at the end of that game. UCLA played really, really well in the final, I would say, 10 minutes, where they held Cal to, I think, 10 points over the last 10 minutes. But you just got to keep that in mind that playing a bunch of close games, no matter if you win or lose, if you're playing them against mediocre teams, that's not good. Yeah, I, I think we have to just discount in here that they're going to lose some games in the Pac-12. They, they have a really tough schedule coming up. Uh, yeah, the, I mean, the meat of the schedule is coming. Yeah, they play Oregon and USC. Uh, I mean, they played Oregon twice within three days. Um, luckily, it's at... It's it's at Pauly and then SC. So, uh, I mean, this that's and and everything isn't easy. You know, they uh, ASU, Arizona come to town. Those yeah, Washington those, almost beat them and they have to go on the road Washington, to Washington in early to, February, to which is usually that house of horrors, except for last year. Uh, yep. They go on the road, mountain schools. I mean, uh, Washington State like is going to be pissed off. Uh, th- there's, yeah, th- there's a lot of tough games left on the schedule. Um, the one thing is though, they are ahead by a good, what is it? I think it's like three and a half games, two and a half, three games right now, I think yeah. in the Pac-12. So they do have a bit of a cushion while other teams in, who are in second place, SC and Oregon, you know, SC's got a tough schedule themselves coming up. So I like where UCLA is right now. I'm discounting in there's going to be at least a couple of losses in there, I'd say. But I think they've they've done well enough to pad to pad it to where they might be able to get through it with just a couple of losses, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think... Um, so Ken Palm right now would project them losing five more games. Um, so five Pac-12 games, um, which... Even if you bake that in, looking at USC and Oregon's future schedules as far as other Pac-12 contenders, they would still win the conference by a couple of games. Um, like, that's the yeah. projection right now. Um, so I, I think UCLA has that baked in. But yes, I think the perspective on the rest of the season is this. Um, the three best teams in the Pac-12 right now, besides UCLA, are Colorado, Oregon, and USC in some combination. Right. UCLA's played one game against those three so far, and they have five remaining games against those three. So they haven't really played the best yet. Um, You know, Arizona, I think, is pretty good. They're the next best team besides Colorado that they've played. They have to play them again, too. Um, So they've benefited, I think, from playing the weaker part of the schedule so far. Um, And they've done what they needed to do, but they've just barely done it. Um, And now it's mostly good teams coming up, which I don't know. Maybe that's actually a good thing because this team has reserved its best overall performances, its 40-minute performances, its, you know, full full go from the beginning performances for the better teams it's played. Um, and I think, you know, with even Stanford uh, this weekend, um, even if they potentially have some personnel deficiencies, they're in a good enough position from, like, a quality of team standpoint that I think UCLA will be more up for that game than they were against Cal. 
But then it is Oregon twice, um, sandwiched around Oregon State, which is a worry because they're a bad team. Uh, but then it's USC, and then it's the two Washington schools. But after that, the last five games are all against decent to good teams. The two Arizonas, the two Mountain Schools, and USC. So we might see a lot more of UCLA giving its best shot because it's not going to be in that position where it's playing against a team that's, frankly, bad. Um, and it's unfortunate that that's the reality of this team, but I think now half halfway through the season we can say it. You know, this team does tend to play down to poor competition. See, but you're talking about Oregon State, which would be a team you're talking about that they would play down to, but Oregon State just beat ASU and USC. Yeah, so, which, but that just speaks to the danger. But I think this team, this team has a potential yeah. of just looking at. I don't know. It seems like they just look at records. Like the guys going to the game, like, oh, this should be a nothing team, and then they, you know, play them very close. Um, you know, and even that, like, I mean, ASU, they were so depleted coming into that game, and it's like, I, did they look at the scouting report and see those guys weren't playing and just let up? Or it, it's just it's interesting to analyze the psychology of this team because it's not. It's not a team of loafers. You know, when Alford teams would do this, you'd be like, oh, well, that's just built into the mindset of these teams. Um, this team isn't a team of loafers. Like, the last 10 minutes of the game, they do look really good. They look, you know, and they, they're totally engaged. And I wouldn't say, you know, aside from an odd moment here or there, I, I thought Mick Cronin made a good point when you brought this up after, um, I think, the Washington game, which is, like, the effort level. He said, yeah, I don't, you guys only he, he watched. He disagreed with me. But I, I thought it was a pretty good disagreement. I thought it, <laughs> I, it, it I, actually I, made me think about it a little bit more because we tend to be critical of effort at times. I think maybe a hangover from the Alford years. And there are times, certainly, in these games where the effort isn't great from either an individual player or overall they, they lack a little bit um, defensively sometimes. But he made the point, you know, you guys are, you're watching UCLA. You're very familiar with the players. You're very familiar with the team. And yeah, there are going to be lapses. The question is, are they significant? Do they last for a really long time? Or are we just hyper-focused on UCLA? Because that's the team we're watching all the time. Because every team, even the best teams, will have lapses. And I thought it was a good point. The question well, is, point, is UCLA, point, where is UCLA on that spectrum? His point was also, it wasn't necessarily about playing hard or not playing hard. Uh, and, and this is kind of a subset of that. He was, his point was also of staying, staying focused and playing smart. Um, for this, this team is not a great, there aren't a lot of great athletes who are nationally great on ball defenders. Um, so how much more he can get out of them athletically to stay in front of a ball is, is a huge question mark, but you can get them sharper and more focused. And I think that's what we see when they start playing. There are less times when you go, Oh damn, that was a horrible. Why are two guys closing out on him? You know, just stuff like that. And then like toward in the last 10 minutes or so, you don't say that in, in the game last night. You didn't say that that often. It's it's a really interesting di- dynamic about that team, just what's going on with them in so many ways. Because maybe, uh, I mean, I think like you, I've started to think what, about Coach Cronin's answer. And I think I tend, I tend to agree that it's not effort as much as something else, which is pure focus and playing smart. And so that brings us back, well, brings us to who are the players, and Greg Hicks brought this up in his article, and this is, I think this is really, like, really pertinent to the rest of the season. It's not about who are the best long-term players. It's about who is going to, who Mick Cronin needs to put time into right now 
that's going to produce the best play by March. Um, that's why uh, Mr. Hicks came up with Johnny Juzang. Best short-term investment right now. Yeah. Um, I was wondering kind of what you think uh, about that. And first off, you know what? We, we, need, we need to probably just dedicate this podcast. This is like the Jules Bernard Appreciation Podcast. Oh, it truly is. Um, because, and I, will, I got yeah. a mea culpa there because I was like, I was very down on Jules after, I don't know, three or four games this year and almost all of last year. Uh, he's really, really become a good player. Um, and so much more focused. His basketball IQ has just, I don't know, gone through the roof. Um, relative to where he was, um, but he's just playing so under control. This is the best basketball of his life, and I'm I'm totally with Hicks on him. Uh, he's going to make money playing basketball. Yeah, really interesting too, because you you know as recently as last year, he was still making a lot of mistakes. Hell, beginning of this year, I was still this year. Um, and then I mean, like last night, he had one bad drive where he was out of control. And then just about the rest of the game, he played almost flawlessly. Um, and that's a big that's a big improvement. That that doesn't usually happen to where <laughs> most of the time you're making the wrong decision, and then it changes to where the vast majority of the time you're making the right decision. And then it's also effort and toughness. That one possession. I think it was about a minute or two into the second half when he got to got an offensive rebound put it back up miss got another offensive rebound put it up and was fouled and just get you know he's getting fouled he's going up and down I mean you you're all riled up goes to the line and hits two free throws that yeah. that changed the whole tenor of the game for me yeah. from that moment on I said huh okay and my attitude kind of shifted now that they were like the team to beat in that game to yeah. me because of him Right in that moment. Um, so yeah, we don't give him enough appreciation. No, we, and, and frankly, really frankly, I, if I'm Jaime Hawkins, I, I feel Jules Bernard breathing down my neck as the best player on this team. Actually, and I know that's kind of high praise, but um, it's 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 getting close for me. Um, Jules has played in, incredibly well this year. Yeah, um, and he does a lot of things that I mean. He's he's rebounding better than Hawkes. He's getting to the free throw line better than Hawkes. Um, and they play kind of similarly. You know that same similar kind of a aggressive. You know they can be at the rim. They can shoot a little bit. They they play very similar games. But um, Hawkes has been or Bernard has been more effective, especially of late. And then a couple other things. Um, backup point guard. So versatility. Oh yeah. And then also. We've kind of thought Jules Bernard, we've always called him like the best defender since last season. I personally don't think I've watched I've watched the last four games really closely and just focused on each guy defensively. He's not as good as maybe we're making him out to be defensively, but he's better than than Jaime. And he's trying damn hard. And he's trying hard. And I, I think it's with Jaime, I think it's a matter that you just can't play a guy 36 minutes a game. It's it's just gonna wear him down. Um, yeah. But Jules Bernard, right now, I I would if you had if you had to make me vote for MVP, it would be really close because his coming on, I mean Jaime is who he was, right? 
his uh, Bernard's coming on throughout this year really is what's fueled is fueled, uh, you know, the 12 and two and the eight and eight and zero. I yeah. think, I mean, those two guys, I mean, big, powerful wings. Um, it's, it's fun when they're both playing well, when they're both on the court together. Um, yeah. Okay. But um, I wanted to address Hicks's point about Juzang because I thought it was yeah. really well made and I think he makes a compelling case and I almost completely disagree with it. Yeah. Um, That's I, my, my thought. Exactly what you just said. Cause I, yeah. I totally get where he's coming from. And I think if, if it all came together, I think he'd be proven very right. I'm I'm very concerned about the shooting because the thing is, if Johnny Juzang isn't shooting well, here's the thing. I was trying to do this, the like look back at stats to see who he compares to because my instincts were sort of Isaac Hamilton-y um, from a last year compelling case. Um, I would say statistically almost no better than Prince Ali. Um, and obviously, he's a, Johnny Juzang is a second year player in college. He's young for his grade level, or at least he's, you know, he skipped the last year of high school. So whatever. I don't know what his actual age is. doesn't really matter. Um, but he's young in his experience, I should say. Um, so there's obviously some, like, basic upside there, but he's not a huge athlete. I mean, he's probably a better athlete than a few of those guys he named, like Jake Kaiman and maybe David Singleton. Um, but I think the way he takes shots, um, the way he takes some questionable shots now he wouldn't be in it with Chris Wilkes or Jalen Hands as far as taking bad shots but on this team where almost no one takes a shot out of the rhythm of the offense ever uh Juzang really stands out when he does it and he does it frequently um and they're yeah. not the and it's it's different they're not the egregious like walk-up threes that Jalen Hands broke out on occasion but they are egregious in the context of this team and the way that rubs off on your teammates, I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. And he's missing them. It'd be one thing if he was making them, but he's missing these shots a lot. Like how many how many one dribble pull up jumpers did he take yesterday that he just missed, flat out missed, and they were they were taken out of the rhythm of the offense. Um, and he's playing a lot of minutes doing that. Now I understand Hicks's point about you know you play him for the upside, but frankly, David Singleton, when he was inserted in the lineup last year. Did he statistically blow up? No. By, by no means did he. But what you get when he comes into the game is the ball flows. Like, he's going to pass it around. It never stays in his hands for very long. And he can hit threes. Um, yeah, they do have to be spot-up threes where he is standing still. He's not a moving shooter by any stretch of the imagination. But he's going to flow the ball. He gets it into the post. I mean, how many times yesterday was he just the best post-entry guy? Him and Kaiman both, actually, just getting it into the post. Getting it into the post. Um, you need just reliable dudes who are going to move the ball. And if it's at the sacrifice of Johnny Juzang, who is currently, um, statistically, he is just above Kaiman as the worst shooter on the team from an effective field goal percentage standpoint. Um, if it's sacrificing that, I don't think you're actually making that big of a sacrifice. And you would have to count on Juzang becoming lights out or nearly that, I think, to offset it by the end yeah. of the year. It's it's really interesting because that's where I wanted to go with this too, specifically Ju Zhang versus Singleton. And uh, uh, so, if you look at both of their games, you put them, you line them up next to each other. Uh, Singleton, absolutely a better three point shooter. Um, I don't know if I think Singleton did make a little runner earlier in the season, but if you're talking mid range game, Johnny Ju Zhang hands down gives you that opportunity. So so there's more. 
there's more that you have to guard. Um, so he brings more from a scoring offense. Uh, I mean, maybe that maybe that evens out because you've got Singleton's three-point shooting. But then, as you said, every other thing that, that Singleton does offensively helps create that offense. And then on defense, I, I gotta I gotta give the nod. I'd rather have Singleton out there. I thought he was part of kind of that first four or five minute defensive push in the second half where he he was critical. Yeah. There. Um, I'm kind of I'm kind of torn because I, you started to think that maybe Juzang was shooting his way out of it, like Arizona, Washington State. You know, from three he was six of ten. Now in the last two games he's two of nine. So. And and it's not like if he were shooting within the flow, I'd almost say, okay, but maybe I'm just having PTSD, Alford PTSD flashbacks because there were a couple in that game against California where early in the shot clock and in my mind, I'm saying this is a critical time in this game right now. And he just came around a, a incredibly high screen from about 25 feet and jacked it up. And then Washington came, uh, sorry, Cal came down, scored at the other end, and it was immediately four point swing. And just defl- I, it was in a point I can't remember, but UCLA was really trying to make a push in my mind, and that just deflated it. So I, I like you, I, I see what, what Hicks is doing, and I, I see the argument, and I, and I kind of agree to an extent, but we have, we know what David Singleton, single, ah, Singleton can do to a team. We saw it last year. I don't know. It, it's tough for me at this point. Um, I, I think I'd go with what I know and that Singleton because right now you're playing Juzang thinking that let's keep playing him, keep playing him, and he's going to be able to shoot his way out of the slump and, that, and you're going to play him and hope that gets better and that's what you're betting on. We don't have to bet with Singleton at this point. Um, and is Juzang's upside, is it that much more incredible, even if he started shooting 36% from three, 38? Is that really that much more significant? So, Well, and what do you need when you're playing alongside um, Hawkes and Bernard? Because that's where Juzang's minutes generally are coming, right? He comes in yeah. as the starter. What do you need when you're playing alongside two guys who are, I would say, still primarily drivers, right? Yeah, Like, they're both, I think, good three-point shooters, but they're still primarily drivers. Do you need a guy who can kind of do it all, or do you need somebody who's going to be a good spot-up three guy when the defense collapses? Right. I mean, Singleton is a reliable spot-up three guy. Um, So I think there's also a lineup fit question, which is maybe David Singleton doesn't play a lot more, and maybe you use Juzang as instant offense off the bench, right? Yeah, that's what I wrote, I think, about when he was going through that bad shooting slump about three weeks ago. Yeah. Um. And I think because, see, here's the other dynamic of this, because Jaime Yaquez and Jules Bernard are shooting so much better from three now, they just clearly are, that takes the pressure off, off Singleton. You know, before, when you're walking into a game and Singleton's the only one who's shooting decently from three, you know, other teams know, know who to mark, right? Now they can't. So this is going to open up Singleton for more looks. I, yeah, I think... He's shooting 51% from three. Yeah. Well, he's at 51. And and just so everyone kind of has a picture, he's shooting 51%. Bernard is almost at 40% now. And Hawkes is at 
four percent. Yeah. Um, so you've got three really good three point shooters, and then but the thing is, the guy who's taken the most on the team is Johnny Juzang, who's at thirty one percent. Yeah. Um. So that's not great. And then yeah. you've got Tiger Campbell, who has to take him just to keep a defense honest, and he's at thirty percent. Yeah. Um. I, I, there's an argument ab- absolutely to be made there, and I I, I thought losing track of the games, but um, when Cronin kind of, you could see he's making in-game decisions, definitely. When when Juzang was just not playing very well, that was, uh, which game? Oh, that was that was a Washington game, right? He only played 24 minutes. And uh, Singleton got increased minutes. That's what you need. I think that's what you need to do. The thing that was kind of a snag for me last night was 31 minutes from Juzang when he was clearly not it wasn't his night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, um, and I think I think when the when the pressure gets on in those sorts of games, I think um I think oftentimes Cronin's hoping for some shooting um to kind of just materialize. Um but even then, I think it's it's any you know, Singleton played, Kaiman played. But I think he maybe was thinking, okay, Juzang just needs to get going because um, we're going to need some shooting to get out of this one. Um, but I, I, I think we're basing everything off of what we've seen in games, and what we've seen in games is what we're seeing, and it's also what we saw at Kentucky last year. Um, looks good, stroke looks good. You know, he's a, a versatile offensive player who can take shots from everywhere, and um, you know, he's a decent passer and and can you know he's he moves a little bit better offensively than um Kaiman or or Singleton but the shots just don't go down they just don't um and I obviously with his free throw stroke you would anticipate at some point they will but and maybe they are in practice at a greater rate than any of these guys and it's just luck of the you know it's a small sample size or whatever um and I'll buy that argument it's just um for us, uh, David Singleton, very much a known quantity, and very much a known quantity with a, I would say, a pretty decent floor. Like, a, you know, you know you're going to get, he's going to move the ball okay, he's not going to turn it over a bunch, and he's going to hit threes at a pretty good rate. Um, and in that situation, and he's, you know, defensively, I think he's limited athletically, like a lot of these guys, but he's going to try hard to stay in front of his guy. Not always going to be able to. Some of those guys are going to be a lot quicker than him, but he's going to try hard. Um, and I, I think... For me, with with wanting this team to stabilize so that they're not playing these kinds of really <laughs> dreadful first halves um, against some mediocre teams, I think I would want that. Like, I would want somebody who's going to stabilize things and then see if Johnny Juzang gets it together off the bench. See if he gets it together as a shooter and a scorer um, when he's leading that second unit. Um, and maybe, maybe it all kind of clicks for him a little bit more then. And he gets his shooting stroke back or finds, you know, his rhythm or how he can, you know, take things within the flow of the offense. And then he's ready to play. Um, you know, it, Bernard started this year and then he moved to the bench and then he came back into the starting lineup and he's been better since. Um, so maybe it's something similar with him. And let's give a little credit again to Cody Riley. <laughs> there is something I don't he doesn't seem like a guy who's who's well conditioned. Right. <laughs> no. But damn, down the stretch, he is maybe he just has some weird kind of adrenaline uh, boost that he gets. He becomes the man in the last 10 minutes. And 
you keep wondering when that isn't going to happen. But it happens every time they need him. And it happened again last night. And not only not only his post moves, he had that really pretty spin in the paint uh, with a few minutes left. But he made he's now making that face-up jumper. And teams will not get out there. They're leaving him open for that. Um, so, yeah, he did it again. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and that always presents that same issue that you and I have talked about. And I know Cronin's trying to manage this by, you know, 40 minutes between Riley and, and Hill, and I've got myself a player. And, and, I, and Cody Riley is the man down the line, but there, there are times when the defense on this team, like we said, is screaming out for Jalen Hill. Yeah. Um, that his presence like what I wrote in the review, his presence in the first four minutes of the second half changed changed so much. Uh, UCLA was just unable to, uh, its collapsing defense was leaving so many shooters open because when someone drives, gets around someone, everyone's got to collapse. When you got a guy in there who's just a complete rim protector hanging out in the paint, guys don't cheat and collapse as much and know they have another step out there to close out. And that, they didn't, you know, Cal did not get a lot of great looks through in the second half because yeah. of that. And the, so the announcers kept it, talking about it. Um, yeah. They would get a mismatch or what they perceived as a mismatch, and then Hill would just either alter or block the shot. Um, he was only credited with one block. I counted at least two watching it. Um, I thought there were two. Yeah, and it's just, he defensively changes and I think this is where it gets kind of uh, – it, it's a muddled argument, I think, until you realize how much Hill changes things defensively for UCLA because it's not simply – and I thought you made a really good point in the recap. It's not simply that he blocks shots and he alters shots himself. It's that the knowledge that he is back there changes the way UCLA can play aggressive perimeter defense. Um, Riley, it, I would say he's turned himself into a, an adequate defender. Um, and honestly, he moves his feet better on the perimeter than I ever expected he would be able he, to. He, he's a better perimeter defender than he is sometimes in the post. Yeah, and I don't want to knock him at all, but he's not a rim protector. And he yeah. never will be. He just doesn't have the verticality to do it. Hill is. Just by simply having him out there, he's a rim protector. He's also better on the perimeter than Cody Riley is. And that's not – I'm not trying to knock Riley at all. It's just there's a clear – clearly better defensive player. And the argument I've always made is that Hill also brings a lot offensively that just kind of doesn't get acknowledged because he doesn't have the pretty back to the basket game. But the way he offensive rebounds, the way he creates free throw opportunities, all that kind of stuff matters. Like that matters for an offense. And again, with a team with two great drivers and Hawkes and Bernard, maybe that matters more. Um, but that's, again, all secondary. Um, Riley has turned himself into, I would say, not quite, but nearly automatic when he's singled up um, on the low post. And you can't discount that either. When you need a bucket, you throw it into him and he can make it happen. And uh, I agree with you. The energy he showed late in that game, um, especially rallying from what was not his best game to that point. You know, he had had a sequence that was very similar to redshirt freshman Cody Riley, where he couldn't keep his feet under him and he would just trip over himself and get off balance. And he had a, a sequence of, like, I think two straight turnovers where it was like, what's going on? Um, and then he rallied. Uh, you know, when he came in the final, whatever, six, seven minutes, he was he was really good. But I guess my point is, um, if this team is ever going to become a good defensive team, it's going to have to come with Jalen Hill 
playing more of those minutes. Um, and I know it changes things, and I know it's a losing argument with how Cody Riley is playing offensively. I don't think Mick Cronin's going to take him out of the lineup with his low post scoring ability. But Jalen Hill, in 20 minutes of up and down time where he was, you know, played, I think, only five minutes in the first half or seven minutes in the first half and then 12 in the second half, he had eight rebounds. Um, it's, you know, he's just, and he only uh, turned I'm, the ball over one time. Um, he I'm, had a great assist. Um, one of Johnny Juzang's uh, lone buckets was uh, an assist from Hill where he just found him cutting into the lane. Um, I, I think... I think it's a missed opportunity to keep him splitting minutes evenly with Riley, and that is even acknowledging how well Riley is playing offensively. Perfect segue because missed opportunity, and I'm get, I'm going to go back to it. I I I would have liked to have just seen Cronin ex, at least experiment for like three minutes with a two post offense. Yeah, I, just I, to see what both of these guys could do. And I'm looking down the I'm looking down the. If, if they haven't done it now, <laughs> I'm looking down the schedule and trying to see when they could do it. I, this I, feels like the, uh, I need to find Russell more minutes of the Mick Cronin move, right? I, I don't think this yeah. is, uh, I, I think it's going to be, I think Mick Cronin's going to be talking about installing a two-post offense, like, at the final game of the year. Like, I don't, I just don't see it happening. Yeah. Because he's been no, talking about it now for a few weeks, where he's like, I got to find a way to, you know, get two posts on the court at the same time we saw it a little bit with Nawuba and Hill um at the end of one of these games in the last couple of weeks um but it just it's worth it's worth an experiment what if I you agree do it for a few, you do it for a few minutes and there's a revelation that oh my god this this works for one thing let's say that takes uh three or four or however many minutes away from juicing <laughs> and and you get him off you get him off the court right there and then the mismatches you've got, obviously, you've got Hill and everything he brings. You've uh, defensively, you've got um, Cody Riley and everything he brings offensively. But just what it also could bring that we're not even—that's just them as individual players. Them playing off of each other and the capability there, and how other teams would have to match up against that. They're both I capable just, passers too. Um, it, I just want to see like three or four minutes. Yeah, I just, uh, you know, wa the Washington State game—they're up by thirty. Looking back, that probably would have been the opportunity. We were all thinking about Washington, and uh, he couldn't do it then. I, I did this once before, Tracy. But who has the second highest assist rate on this team? Yeah, you have done this before, Cody Riley. Who has the third yeah. highest? Jalen Hill. Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, these two guys are both capable passers. Um, and if you had them working high-low, I mean, I don't think it's ridiculous to think they could play five minutes alongside each other. Um, yeah. So I'm I'm with you on that. Um, but, I, and I, I, I'm banging such a losing drum here that it's like not even worth continuing to do it, but I just got to keep doing it. If you're playing Jalen Hill 24, 25 minutes a game and Cody Riley 16, 15, even if you'd never play them alongside each other, I think you're going to end up with a better, high, more higher quality team that is prone to fewer um, vagaries of offense because that's really what we're looking at. Um, because as Mick Cronin has said, when they're not shooting well, it affects their defense, right? They they are very prone yeah. to the ups and downs of that. Well, if you're if you've got a bunch of offensive players out there, yeah, that's going to happen because they're offensive minded. Cody Riley's an offensive minded guy. Johnny Juicing's an offensive minded guy. I think even. Um, the way they're playing, I think Hawkes and Barnard, they're still just offensive-minded guys. And so when things aren't going well on that end, they're going to play like that. But Jalen Hill, he's a defensive-oriented dude. So 
you're going to see the effort from him, even if he does miss a shot on offense. Um, I, I, and I think I, you're going to see more consistency of the team if he's playing a little bit more. In particular, even if he's not playing all that much more, but if he's starting the games, I think you're going to see more tone setting. So, and here's maybe a way of doing this. Um, as we said, Cody Riley is uncanny in the last 10 minutes of every game. Um, he just gets he gets a fifth gear. And by that time, opposing post players are just tired of him beating the crap out of them. So maybe you boost Hill's numbers before that and reduce. Because Cody's good the rest of the game. But man, I mean, he is... He is doing it in the last 10 minutes. So you give Hill more minutes, probably in the first half, I think, and then let Cody do his thing in the last 10. So now with Hill getting those earlier minutes, you've now probably gotten a few more stops. So you're not hanging around with a three-point lead or you're down. You're probably up 10 to 12 because you've gotten a few more stops. Yeah. Very then, simply, put put Jalen yeah. Hill in there to put some fouls on a dude because that's what he's really good at. Um, yeah. Have him start a game, put some fouls on a dude, get him into two foul trouble, and then have Cody Riley go in there with single coverage because they they don't want to deal with fouling him too because they're already sitting there with two fouls. And then he closes out the first half scoring a bunch of points. Then do the exact same thing in the second half. Get him to four yeah. fouls and then get Cody Riley in there and score a bunch of points. Um that would that makes more sense to me, and then you're also setting the tone defensively. You're getting these guys up yeah. at the beginning of the game. Do you do you check the lineup before every game to see if Cody's still starting? Yes, <laughs> I think everyone is. <laughs> but yeah. the thing is, and I, uh, people are probably listening to this like, "What Cody Riley's playing well? He's maybe their best offensive player." And I'm like, "You're probably right. He probably is." I, I guess it just. I think all of us are dealing with like. Um, having watched the Howland teams, um, the early Howland teams, like still prioritizing defensive lineups. But I do think Hill, um, and I, again, I, I understand it's a losing argument. I think he's fundamentally just a better player, like overall, um, even though he is not as offensively skilled. So I, I think he should be playing more minutes, but at the very least I would switch them. Like I would have him starting the games and setting tone defensively. Because yeah. that's really this team's concern. They they don't they don't start well defensively, and it tends to lead into these games that are awkwardly close late. Um, but maybe they could actually suffocate a team a little bit early, build up a big lead, and then just maintain it. Um, but anyway, so so I mean, Coach Cronin, feel free. Feel free to take our ideas. I mean, we're not <laughs> we don't have them copywritten, right? No, 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 no. no. Yeah. No, we don't copyright. Yeah. Not here. Yeah, we don't copy. No. Um and then I, I guess the other thing that we gotta note or talk about with lineups and everything is Jalen Clark. Um, because that this has been, I think, a note on the board a lot is I think similarly people, you know, remembering the Howland years wanting Clark to play, you know, more minutes, um, because everyone Everyone could recognize his um, upside generally, but particularly his defensive upside. Um, this is a tougher one for me because I do think he's offensive, offensively limited. Um, we're making the argument for Singleton over Juzang. If you're adding Clark to that mix, first, I have a real hard time uh, taking minutes away from Hawkins or Bernard, particularly Bernard, actually. Um, if you wanted to steal, I don't know, five minutes from Hawkins a game, I'm totally cool with that. Because um, I do think he gets burned out by the minutes. But then you're just talking about maybe five more minutes for Clark. 
Um, I think his minutes do have to come to a certain extent on the wing too. And so then you're eating again more into Ju Zhang's minutes, um, which I'm not totally opposed to, but you really are almost zeroing out offensively when he's in the game, at least for now. Um, but he does bring a lot defensively. So I don't know. I'm, I'm putting that one to you. What do you think? Um, I find the whole argument really interesting about Clark because for the longest time, the argument among UCLA fans when uh, Howland would play defensive guys, you know, guys who did limited offensively, and then everyone argued that, you know, Alford's offense was good and you like all these scorers. And, and now, I mean, we just, it's obvious Jalen Clark's offense is very limited, right? Truly limited at this point in his career. He's go- he's a good defensive player. He's probably going to be a great one. But there are going to be a lot. Just the fact that the whole narrative for many people watching these games has changed from we want offense, we want offense. And then when you have guys who are offensive minded, they're going to go into slumps. And then as soon as that happens, is well, we want this really offensive limited true freshman to play. <laughs> um, I don't. Believe me, remember, I'm the guy, I love watching defense. It's it's my thing. But he's not ready. I'd like to give him a few more minutes here and there, absolutely. But he's not the guy who's going to let you, take you to another level to win. Not only because of just the limited scoring abilities. There's a, there's There's so much that we don't get because we're just watching the game. He doesn't... He's a true freshman. There's a lot of little details and technique and things that he's just not doing on offense and defense. And for coaches, that drives you crazy. Like, he's just literally six inches out of position where he should have been. He wasn't in his stance. He missed that switch. He he fumbled that pass. He just so much. There's so many little things that we're not seeing so overall, I have no problem with how he's being used. I, I mean, like you said, I wouldn't mind him seeing getting two or three more minutes from uh, from Jaime because, damn, that 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 kid should not be playing 37 minutes. That that's counterproductive, and maybe a few from Juzang too. But to like take away Jules Jules Bernard's minutes, no, no, you, you can't have those. So, no, I want I want Jules to be playing even more. Yeah. So I don't, I I think it's okay where it is. And even like, like what Greg Hicks was saying, the short term, if you played him a lot right now, I don't think Jalen Clark is necessarily, necessarily going to pay off big in terms of making the team better by March. No, Um, I I think it's more of just um, give him enough minutes to actually develop. I don't want it to be Remember how Westbrook played his freshman year and he played like, I want to say it was like seven or eight minutes a game, which is more than what Clark was averaging right now. And everyone was like, well, yeah, he had some deficiencies, but he still should have played more than that. Like you you still wanted to see more of the hyper athletic guy who has flashes of brilliance. Um, Clark, he's averaged, I mean, he's played a lot more the last four games, but we're still talking about averaging nine minutes a game. Um, I would like to see him averaging 10. Like, I would like to see him averaging 10 to 12, um, 
which would entail stealing a couple minutes here and there. Um, I don't think you're taking him from any one guy with Clark because you're really just trying to get him in the game. But I would love to see him play alongside Hill a lot um, because I think they, I think they would actually play off of each other pretty well. Um, Clark tends to get a lot of his points at the rim, and I would be a little bit worried about the spacing with Riley in there because he also is just trying to work low post the whole time. But Hill, he's kind of a rim runner himself. He'll just kind of you know move around a little bit in there. He's not necessarily working a ton of back to the basket game, um, and they could both offensive rebound. Um, but I, I I would like to see him, to your point, just take a couple of minutes from Hawkes, take maybe two of Kaiman's minutes um, in those games where he's not shooting well. Um, but really, that's it. I mean, I don't think I don't think there's anything to be gained by playing him 20 minutes a game. I think that would be far too much, especially when we're talking about Singleton. Um, you know, right now, Juzang is averaging 27 minutes a game and Singleton is averaging... Let me pull it up. Singleton's 20. averaging 18.4, and Johnny Juzang is averaging 27.7. I think what Tracy and I are talking about is potentially evening those out, more or less. Make it so Singleton's playing like 22, 23, and Juzang is right in a similar level. Um, and then, you know, maybe drop both of them down a couple more minutes and give, you know, Clark a couple of those. But um, no. not really going too much beyond that. At least, I mean, maybe he suddenly makes a big stride, but he's a freshman. He's going to make freshman mistakes offensively, and... Uh, there's just I, I have a hard time seeing him ever playing uh, this year, um, averaging you know 15 or more minutes a game. Yeah, I'm with you. Cool. Um, cool. Okay. Well, we're what we're about halfway through the Pac-12. Se- no, not halfway through. Uh, we are. We're about halfway through the season itself. Um, so lots of fun stuff upcoming. Um, lots of good games, and hopefully we see uh, the very good version of the Bruins going forward. Um, yeah. Okay. Dave, Dave, I want to talk, and we don't have to talk longer than 10 minutes, maybe 12 the most, about football recruiting. <sighs> yeah. I football recruiting. Do. I know you do. I know you do. I know. I was trying to put it off for as long as possible, but here we I go. Know. I know. You were trying to pull out anything you could about, but hey, how about those shoes about Oh, players? yeah. God, the shoes. The shoes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, no. Swaggy. Well, here's the thing, and we I've been saying this for a, a while. If, if Chip Kelly is going to save this football program and turn it around, and I'm more positive now than, I, than I've probably been in the last two years about it, it's, it's it, a big element of that is going to be the transfer portal. And you can't give him credit for it, really, because he had no idea. He wasn't basing everything he was doing for the first two and a half years on, hey, that transfer portal thing's going to be happening. This was a random thing that happened that's that's happening that I think he could potentially, well, he already has benefited from. And are you only saying that because you have the same initials as the transfer portal? (laughs) You know, what really confuses me. (laughs) I'm so used to when anyone posts, they say, hey, TP, could you? And then it's TP. And I think, oh, my God, I got all these questions to answer. And does it make you question some things when you learn that somebody has entered TP? I'm the one who made that original joke about myself. So, <laughs> yes, it still keeps me up at night. Yeah. Um, but Zach Charbonnet, the Michigan uh, running back, sophomore running back, uh, is in the transfer portal. We know that UCLA is recruiting him aggressively. I We've dropped Mr. Biggins. 
and I have both dropped some hints that it's looking very good. In fact, it's looking good enough that UCLA and Byron Cardwell kind of cooled on each other a bit, which is a really strong indication that UCLA is doing pretty well with, with Charbonnet. Um, they already got Ethan Garbers, uh, who I think is going to be UCLA's future starting quarterback. Uh, Charbonnet would come in as a true sophomore again. He'll have four years to play three because of the added year of eligibility from the NCAA. Uh, this is this is just the beginning. I, I, I mean, they're doing this based on having not posted a winning season. It's just, you know, some very promising prospects who go out somewhere and decide, ah, I don't want to be in Ann Arbor anymore. <laughs> and I want to go play back at home and I don't want to play at SC. And, you know, I could probably uh, learn a lot of things that might put me in the NFL at UCLA playing for Chip Kelly. And they're getting this right now. What if they actually start winning how much this transfer portal might happen? I was making a point on the forum today that if they act, there are a lot of, not a lot, but there's a decent amount of transfers out there that are super elite transfers, that are guys that are have performed really well on their teams, but they're leaving that program for any number of reasons. Let's say he's not in the transfer portal, but let's say it's Elias Ricks, the cornerback who's originally from Southern California and he's at LSU. You can see maybe why he, he'd want to leave, you know, LSU. You'd think he's, he's going to look at Ohio state. That's where he's going to look. He's going to look at, you know, those kind of programs. Um, but if UCLA wins, that's the kind of guy from Southern California that's going to turn around and, and possibly look at UCLA. So this transfer portal is really a game changer for, for Chip Kelly. Um, and, and just in this season right now, this transfer portal season, it's only just beginning. Um, we're seeing new guys get put in the portal every, almost every day, if you know, a lot, not every single week. And we haven't even got through spring practice. Commonly, what a lot of these players do is they say, oh, okay, well, I'll wait until spring practice because I'll win the spot then. I know I'm going to start then. And then they go through spring practice and realize they're not. Um, so we can expect, while we're getting this whole influx of guys in the transfer portal now, by April, we're going to see a lot more. So this is just... This is just the beginning of this transfer portal season. UCLA has five more open scholarships uh, to stay under the 25 counters that you can bring in in any year. Um, so they have the opportunity to possibly sign, well, that includes uh, high school prospects, but five more guys. There's a lot they could do there. I mean, we've talked about a middle linebacker. We've talked about... Um, you know, that rush end, the pass rusher, uh, they're clearly looking for a cornerback. They offered um, a guy named Cam, jo Cam Johnson from North Texas, who's a good cover corner, uh, who just got offered by Syracuse right after he was offered by UCLA. Um, uh, they could use the safety after they've lo they lost, uh, they're losing DBs. Um, <laughs> so you could see them bringing in a, a safety too, you'd love to see them get a tight end because that's getting a little scary when it comes to depth. But uh, you uh, were, 
everyone needs to stay engaged with this and interested because this is going to go on at least through April, if not May and June. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of opportunity for Chip Kelly to upgrade his roster, not even in the long term for the next couple of years, but for next season. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Dave. What 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 do you think? Can I, can I say my line? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's setting up for a good roster for the next head coach. <laughs> we could get into it, but I'm telling you, there is a. I am. I wouldn't. The word isn't positive. Let's say. Because that sounds like that sounds like you're being subjective. I'm I, I think he has a better chance, Chip Kelly, of turning around the program now, mostly because of this transfer portal. And the other element is Brian Norwood. Those two things. Uh, I was always skeptical going into this year because I thought eh, that's just not a very good defensive scheme. Now I think they pretty much have it, even though we all want to see it more just to make sure it is that in the transfer portal. I think if they just if they get eight wins next year, I think the floodgates. It's I think it's happening. So there you go. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm interested to see it. I, I, I'll say that like I'm more interested in what's going on with UCLA football than I have been since 27 since the first year for Chip Kelly uh, since right. he was hired in 2017 in that first season. Like I do think this team has uh, potential in a way that I didn't think uh, last year's team coming in would. Um, and with all these transfers, I'm I'm intrigued by the entire experiment again um, because I'm really interested to see, can you just seamlessly integrate transfers into a program? Because that will fly in the face of a lot of what we've heard over the years about uh, how you have to build a roster, how it takes time for guys to gain experience with your schemes and yada, 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 and all that stuff. But if they do, say, get an impact transfer middle linebacker or something like that, right? And that guy's suddenly able to just play that position seamlessly in this defense that he hadn't been in before, well, that would fly in the face of all this thing. Because so many things were kind of um, accepted as true heading into this pandemic season that have turned out to not be true. You don't need uh, 12 years to schedule a football game. You need a week, maybe a couple of days sometimes. Um, and maybe also you don't need to be in a scheme for three years to know how to play in it. You need, uh, you know, a month of learning. Um, I'm interested to see what things are proven true or untrue by this grand experiment of the transfer portal. Um, I'm still skeptical of Chip Kelly's program overall. Um, still skeptical, just generally speaking, about you know the defense as a consistent whole. Um, but certainly there are reasons to be optimistic, and certainly there are reasons to think that this team could be pretty good next year. And, and here's the thing, too, the transfer portal. Um, so let's say they use all five of those for transfers, that the open scholarships. We, we said our wish list, middle linebacker, cornerback safety. But there might be guys who get in the transfer portal at other positions. I mean, there could be another wide receiver. There could be another offensive lineman that aren't you know, dire positions of need, but the guy that the transfer is just too good and you have to take him, you know, there's, uh, there's a lot. I think this transfer portal thing is created for me. And I think everyone should look at it this way, a whole new element of college football that that's pretty exciting for uh, many reason. First off, just, it changes it changes your personnel and your roster 
And that's exciting. That's why we like recruiting originally because we're getting in new uh, new athletes that you think, wow, that's exciting to see how they're going to play. This is another extension of this. Um, and I think it's consistent with our idea that we've always had that players need more control over their college experience. The way it's been where they're not allowed to transfer, like, what is that? Why aren't I, they should, I, I'll let you go off on this because you, I think you articulate this better, but I, I that's just been so ridiculously restrictive for me uh the ncaa rules on on transfers yeah i mean the reality of what's kind of come is what should have been in place forever um which is these guys should have transfer freedom um and they should have always had it and they should always have it um it shouldn't be a one-time thing it should be an all-the-time thing um if you want to get into like the realities of it yes it is hard to build a roster if guys can just move around freely um but you're also not paying them so you know, let them play the sport they love and let them go where they can find playing time opportunities. And if they, the thing is, if you are a program and you have a guy and he's playing really well and he's in your program and he's starting, then his reasons for leaving, probably team success, uh, maybe wants to be on a bigger stage, all that kind of stuff. And I, I, I don't know, why would you want to preclude him from doing that? Um and I think until you're paying these guys, I don't think you should restrict their movement. Um, and someone will say, well, they are being paid a scholarship, but I'm just going to throw that out. <laughs> yeah, um, well, it's, it's, but, a, it's, a, it's a, I mean, if we want, it's a different argument. If we want to say they're being compensated in some way, sure, they are. I mean, they get the education and it has different value for different people. Um, but yeah, okay, that's compensation, but it's not pay. They're not ever having to get, they're not ever getting a market wage. They're not ever getting something that is a competition for their services based off of the amount they're compensated. So they have to prioritize other things. Um, the showcase for the stage on which they will actually be paid a market wage for one. Um, so guys searching for better opportunities to showcase themselves for the opportunity to get paid for what they like doing. In other words, the NFL, um, they should have that opportunity um, and it shouldn't come with this egregious penalty where they have to take away a year of their college eligibility. So a year of their essential job training, they have to take away simply because they wanted to put themselves in a better position for that job. And, um, and that whole, and that whole long running, uh, you know, um, I'm going to call it an excuse um, that you can't build a roster. It's too hard. People coming and going so much. This whole thing that we've heard from coaches, you know what, get over it. <laughs> I, I mean, coaches are so used to staying in their groove. They, they are very much old school type of mentality. They have their way of doing stuff and they don't like getting out of it. Well, tough. I mean, get out of it. Start thinking more uh, progressively and what's happened, what you need to do to keep abreast with what's going on instead of just by rote what you do every single well, it season should, it should change the way you uh, it should change the way you think about your roster it should change the way you deal with your roster it's a it's a change but it doesn't need to be apocalyptic um baseball deals with uh the weird draft crap every year where yeah. they have to determine after the fact whether that guy's going to go pro or not after they've already signed a class or after they've already like oh we've got a commitment from this guy we don't know if he's going to come though uh, basketball had to do that a lot before one and done may have to do it again in the future basketball always has to deal with the one and done situation where a guy can leave at any moment for the draft football has it easy these guys yeah. have to stay in school at least for three years 
So you have that part just kind of squared away. You don't have to worry about that. So this is a new thing that you have to deal with. And basically what it is, is if you are a bad team, guys are going to leave you more. If you um, don't play some guys, they might leave. But you're not playing them anyway. So they're, you know, they might not be very good or they're not ready yet. But anyway, those that's the churn. And there's going to be more churn. But you can still deal with this and you can take opportunities from it. Um, I think it's very good. It makes the whole thing more interesting. Um, By far. And I yeah. think I think for I think there's a, there's college football fans, and I think many of them are making this argument that you know they shouldn't be able to do this because you don't build a roster and the whole thing. And it's it, it's not from a well, negative wait. place, but it is coming from a selfish place, which is you just want it to be the way it has been, so you can grow to appreciate these teams over the years, and also that the, that your favorite team doesn't lose guys. Um, but and if you're a good coach looking for opportunities to make your team and make and make you better. The transfer portal should be looked at as this is an opportunity for, okay, we all, we all have misses in recruiting. I get that. I can shed the guys that I thought were good as a prospect, but aren't. It's so much easier for them to leave. Now they will more readily leave. I will be, I will shed the guys I don't want. And I have an opportunity to go out and get some guys who have proven that they can play. I can upgrade my unit by far. I can get so I can get rid of the three de- defensive backs that I don't ever see playing for me that are kind of dead weight, and I can upgrade. That's how they should be looking at it. That building a roster and building depth chart, this is the way to do it. Rather than looking at your depth chart with guys that can't play for you, that's not building a depth chart. Well, Those are just names on a depth chart. Yeah, yeah. And how about going out and getting some guys who can play? Yeah, That's it, how the attitude should be. If you want to be negative about this, you better be like a, a Sac State fan or like a UNLV fan or something. Uh, because those are the programs that are going to be hurt by this. Because yeah. anytime they get a really good player, he's going to say, well, okay, I've proven myself really good. I'm moving on now after one or two years. Um, it's Those are the programs that will really potentially be hurt by this. But what I think you're going to end up seeing is the Power Five the quality of play in the Power Five leagues is going to get better because there's going to be more equilibrium between, you know, playing level and um, the, the the program level. Um, you're going to see the lesser players who end up getting recruited at a high level drop down to the Group of Five level, where it's more like their speed, and you're going to see the better players at the Group of Five level move up to the Power Five level, but. Whatever you feel about those programs, that is more equitable for the players. It's better for them because they will get into positions where they can get seen at a better level. Um, all of that. Um, so I think it's, I, I, I think it's a good thing for the players. I think it's something that everyone else has to deal with. And if your program is thoughtful and has some foresight and has some acumen and knows how to manipulate this whole thing, your program is going to see some benefits from it too. And isn't afraid of a little bit of work. Yeah, it, it's, it's, that way. it's adding another recruiting cycle is basically yeah. what it is. Um, and it's every year and it's going to be throughout the year. But if you can do that, um, and if and I think for a staff like Chip Kelly's, and you've made this point, it makes more sense um, because they're not as into the kiss butt game in high school. These guys are a little bit more mature. Now, my skepticism there is that uh, they're not that much more mature, and the kiss butt game is coming to uh, the transfer portal too. I mean, that's that's definitely going to happen. Can, I can tell you this though, so far, and we're not that far into it. 
admittedly so. But in from what I've heard among guys who are in the transfer portal or considering to be in the transfer portal, and I'm just going to talk generally. Um, when they were high school students uh, and prospects, they were looking for a lot of love. And I'll just say it, maybe they were looking, maybe they had their hand out. My experience so far in hearing about potential uh, guys in transfer portals in the last couple of years, the guys who had their hand out in high school aren't, don't necessarily have their hand out in the transfer portal. They're more about, uh, I need to go to a place where I'm going to turn myself into an NFL player better. That's kind of their handout. You know, that's where they're seeing their payoff. I haven't heard about too many different instances where there's been a lot of payoffs when it's come to transfer portals. I'm sure it's happening, but it's not close to the experience with high school players. And literally, there have been some players I know who had their hand out in high school who have gone into the transfer portal since the transfer portal has been around. And from what I gathered, they didn't have their hand out. So, yeah, interesting. Interesting indeed. All right. You got anything else for me? No. No. We're tapped out. I think so. We are dried out and desiccated. All water has left our body. <laughs> the water, the flow so of ideas are gone. Now we remain. <laughs> oh, just keep, keep like reciting like poetry right now. This is good stuff. Keep going. <sighs> just, I'm going to get into, uh, T.S. Eliot here pretty soon. Um, That's my my favorite poet. That's funny you should say that. Who doesn't love him? All right. Well, um, we're not going to leave you with poetry. We're going to leave you with uh, our goodbye words. Uh, I'm David Woods, Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. He's Tracy Pearson. We're both from that site. And we'll talk to you again next time. Everyone, stay safe out there.